Matthew chapter 2 is our text for this morning. We've reached a bit of a transition point in our study of Romans, having finished uh, chapter 5 last week and certainly looking forward to a study of Romans chapter 6 because it's perhaps one of the greatest chapters in all the uh, Bible on the issue of holiness and personal sanctification and how we walk in obedience to God on a regular basis. There are rich truths that are there in Romans 6. They're going to show us what it means to battle sin. And so we're certainly looking forward to getting into all of those things. But before we get into that chapter, I I wanted us to take a couple of weeks during the Christmas season here to turn our minds to two people, uh, two people in their distinct responses to the birth of our Savior, two people who are really a stark contrast for us in how they respond and demonstrate for us really how the world responds so often as they ponder the coming of our King. Puts us in a position to understand from Scripture the way God sees these people and their response. It puts us in a position to say how the world often responds to Him. And in that contrast, it teaches us an awful lot about the way that we might sometimes respond to Christ. These two people, of course, are in Matthew chapter 2, King Herod, and then next week we'll look at Mary, the mother of Jesus. We're going to take time to examine these two people over these next two weeks, and I trust it'll deepen our sense of worship for the Lord during this season and uh, deepen our sense of humility because of all of His work and deepen our sense of joy at this season and what it means for us as believers. And this morning, we'll begin by looking at the first uh, two of these people, profiling, if you will, King Herod. King Herod and his response to the coming of Christ. The story really covers the first 12 verses of this chapter, and so I invite you to turn there in your Bibles and listen along as I read from these verses, Matthew chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. When Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what what time the star had appeared, and he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, Bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. 
Now, if you are among those who during this season feel a sense of frustration as you look around at the world that we live in and, and you see that uh, for most people this is a season that is wrapped not in proper worship of Christ as is the reason, of course, for the season, but it's wrapped in consumerism, it's wrapped in materialism, it's wrapped up in, in all of the temporal worldly things, the crowds, the hectic schedules, the parties, or whatever it might be. If you're one of those people that get frustrated at how everything is lost in the midst of all this, then prepare to take your frustration to a whole new level as you ponder what was taking place here in the opening verses of Matthew chapter 2. It's a story of some messengers, some magi as we call them, bringing a message or some news to Israel, the nation of the Messiah, bringing news of His arrival, His birth, and the example of their worship they brought as well to a people who could not have been better informed, who could not have been better prepared for what was taking place in their midst. But in spite of all that preparation, they responded to the birth of Christ, not by celebrating it, but at best by being indifferent to it, ignoring it altogether, or at worst, taking an opportunity to attack, to suppress the arrival of Christ. Chief among them, of course, was Herod himself, the king of the nation of Israel. And we're going to work our way through this narrative, and we're going to see, as we go through this, four scenes, if you will, like scenes of a great play, each one of them unfolding with, with a more and more spiritual insight into the hearts of men at the arrival of Christ in that age, and certainly giving us insight into the hearts of men even today as they respond to Christ. These scenes unfolding for us really also the glory of God in His wisdom reigning over all these circumstances, always accomplishing His purpose, always bringing it about no matter what the world does in its response. One of those scenes unfolding for us in God's purpose that Christ be worshipped at His birth. Even if it wasn't going to be Israel, God saw fit that he would be worshipped as he ought. That's obvious just by noting the word worship. It's mentioned three times here in just the span of a few verses in, chapter, in, in verse 2, again in verse 8, again in verse 11. You see that repeated theme about how these, these sages, these magi were coming to worship the Lord. But secondly, more dominant than even that, you can't miss the obvious contrast of the one who is the current reigning king, that is Herod, and the one who was born to be king. In fact, the word king just is peppered through this whole, uh, this whole text. Herod is introduced as the king. He is referenced as the king again and again when he speaks. And if you mix in there not just the word king, but the word ruler, and then you add to that the word Christ or the word Messiah, the anointed one, the text is full of references to the sovereign, to the king, to the ruler, to the ultimate one who was to be over Israel. This is a contrast for us put on display by God between two, one who was the presumed king, one who was himself holding on to his kingship with everything he could, and one who was the anointed king, the appointed king by God, and the one who even as a child 
didn't need to, didn't need to coerce worship. God sent him worshipers. God recognized him even when the world didn't and would ultimately and will ultimately exalt him as the king of the world. So four scenes that put all that wisdom of God on display for us in accomplishing his purposes and demonstrating his glory. And the first is is really presented to us in the first two verses. And it's the scene of the Magi in their preparation for worship. The Magi in their preparation for worship. I know as we come to this passage, you all probably have a picture in your mind of this scene already because you've seen the Christmas cards and you've seen all of the, the paintings, the depictions by the, the, the companies and, and the marketeers around us. Matthew begins this chapter by talking about these, these magi, but probably with much different connotation than we might normally assign to it. These men, uh, sometimes translated wise men, sometimes translated magi, which is really just a transliteration of the Greek word magoi, uh, it's really talking about a group of men who were a mysterious order or a, a special order in the ancient days. Matthew doesn't have to tell us their names. He doesn't really tell us anything about the way they're dressed. He doesn't tell us what they were writing, how many there were. He doesn't have to. His original readers would have been immediately piqued with interest when he mentions them. They were renowned in ancient Israel for their position, for the esteem that they carried. He introduces them as these magi who were from the east. Matthew doesn't have to tell a lot, but history certainly tells us much. Other places in Scripture sort of fill in our own understanding, having been separated now so long by so many years and so much culture from them. But these were an ancient group of sages. An ancient tribe of people from the nation of the Medes, and you may remember the Median Empire that eventually conquered Babylon became the Medo-Persian Empire. And all of these nations, Media, Babylon, were all from east of Israel across the deserts of the Middle East. And these Magi were ancient tribes from these nations who had been chosen long ago to serve as sort of a priestly tribe within the Far East, or within, I should say, the Near East, within these nations, not unlike the Levites who were chosen to serve as priests within Israel, these were the priests of the Median people. And when they conquered Babylon, they became the priestly tribe of the Medo-Persians and all the subsequent nations that came from that. They were sometimes referred to as wise men because as the tribe of priests, they were also some of the best educated in the nation. They became the advisors to the king. They were proficient in architecture, in agriculture, natural history, mathematics, and particularly astronomy. They had a preoccupation with the latter of these, mathematics and astronomy, and serving as national priest. They actually incorporated much of this into their national religion. Their astronomy led to a fascination with occultic astrology, and they even developed sort of divination processes where they claimed to know the future, have prophetic powers. 
became involved with all sorts of sorcery and occultic practices. That's why, by the way, they're known as magi. It's been passed down to us in our English word today, magic. That word comes from them. They were considered to be the first order of magicians, the first order of magic workers, things associated with sorcery and all types of things that they were involved with. This was the Magi, the pagan priestly tribe of people from Medo-Persia. Not all who, not at all who you'd expect to be worshipers of Christ. Not at all the ones that you would expect to be the first to recognize Him. These are the ones that we normally eschew. These are the ones that we stay away from. These are the ones that we're suspicious of. All those who are involved with the occult. But as a result of their expertise in all these sciences and mathematical disciplines, they, they as I said, were sort of court advisors to the kings, to the thrones in the Medo-Persian Empire, and eventually when Alexander the Great overtook the Medo-Persian Empire, even the Greek overlords who were in the Medo-Persian area, and then even as the Romans came along and overtook the Greek Empire, they still held on to their place of uh, prominence in what became known as the Parthian Empire. They became high-ranking in their positions as advisors, and you see that traced all the way even through Scripture. You see in Esther chapter 1, verse 13, when King Ahasuerus was trying to decide whether or not to depose of Queen Vashti, we read there in Esther 1, Then the king said to the wise men who understood the times, for it was the custom of the king, so to speak before all who knew law and justice and were close to him, and the seven princes of Persia and Media, who had access, Media, that's uh, uh, Medo Persia, all who had access to the king's presence and who sat at the first place in the kingdom. So, so these were the princes, these were the advisors, these were the interpreters of the law. They always advised the king. They were called here the seven princes of Persia and Media. Literally, the the king or the queen would not even depose one another. They wouldn't, they wouldn't cast someone out of the royal throne without advising these men. And by the way, no one would ever be coronated without advising these men. They became, if you will, the ancient king makers in the Medo-Persian Empire. So for these men to show up and to begin to ask, where is the king of Israel who has been born? You can imagine the response that would have come over Herod to hear that the the ancient king-making tribe has shown up to acknowledge the birth of a king. By the way, this is also the the group uh, in which Daniel was placed. You remember Daniel chapter 2, King Nebuchadnezzar has a dream and he doesn't know how to interpret it and it says that he gathered around him all of these wise men, all the ones who could advise him on these things. Daniel chapter 2 speaks about how they were brought around to advise and interpret the dreams of the king. They're called 
by various names there. It says the the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. They were the ones who, who were thought to know the mysteries of life because they had these mystical powers, the insights. You come over to Daniel chapter 4, you see similar references. By this time, when you get to Daniel chapter 4, Daniel had already been elevated as the chief of the magicians. That's what it says in Daniel 4, 5. I saw a dream that made me afraid as I lay in my bed. Fancies and visions of my head alarmed me. Nebuchadnezzar recounting his dream. So I made a, a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might know, me know to make known to me the interpretation of the dream. The magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, the astrologers came in and I told them the dream. And at last, Daniel uh, came in before me, who was named Belteshazzar after the name of my God and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream. O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, or we might say chief of the magi. Daniel chapter 5 tells us as well that there was another king that came after Nebuchadnezzar, his son Belshazzar, and he hears of Daniel. And Daniel still is the head of the royal magi, the royal advisors, the royal astrologers. There was a man in the kingdom in who in whom is the spirit of the holy gods, he was told. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, are found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, the astrologers. So these guys had a long tradition, being advisors to the king. 600 years or more probably by the time you get to Matthew chapter 2. God had raised up one of these, God had raised up, I should say, among these, one of the godliest men of all time, placed him as their head. And of course, Daniel not only had great insight into dreams, and he not only would have been trained in so many of the technical disciplines that they were trained in, but among all the things that Daniel knew, he had visions himself, visions that were true, visions that were divine, visions that were infallible. And among them were visions and dreams about the coming of a Messiah. The coming of one who would descend in the clouds like the ancient of days. He had these prophecies related to the coming birth of Jesus and he no doubt shared them and taught them to the younger generation of Magi who would have been under him for decades as he trained them and led them he would have written down and shared these prophecies with them. And now, eventually, Darius, who would conquer Belshazzar and Babylon, he would retain Daniel as the chief. And Daniel would have passed on to then another generation of magi until Daniel eventually passes off the scene. And then you have following with him a, a wave, a movement known as Zoroastrianism which was to overtake these nations, become the official religion of the East. It would incorporate many of the astrological beliefs of the Magi 
And there was a sort of forced integration with these pagan religions in the East, a forced syncretism with all of their ancient beliefs. And in this forced syncretism and integration, many of the Magi would uh, take up this Zoroastrianism, hold on to some of their ancient beliefs, uh, beliefs but, but, but integrate them with these new ways. And somewhere in all of that mix, it would seem, passed down through all of the ages, was this continued understanding, this continued belief that there would one day be born in Jerusalem the God of Daniel in human flesh. All the Old Testament Scriptures continued to point to Him. By the way, there would have been left over in Babylon, even to the time of Christ, quite a significant Jewish population. There were a number of Jews who never returned from Babylonian captivity, who went through all of these transitions, continued to worship the Lord, continued to study the Scriptures, to continue to uphold the hope of Israel, even from the capital of Babylon. And so when we get to Matthew chapter 2, we read about these ancient court officials, these ancient magi, these ancient king makers riding into Jerusalem. Having, if you will, clouded with all of their culture and all of their syncretistic beliefs, having just the glimmer of understanding of what God was going to do in the birth of the Messiah having all of that stuff to wade through and having gone through all these years holding on to uh, still these ancient teachings and yet willing to respond when they were called to respond to the reality that He had come. They come riding into town. We're not told how. They're probably not on camels. They would have been high-ranking Persian officials, probably riding in on great Persian steeds. They would have come, no doubt, with a regiment of soldiers and security detail around them, no doubt numbering in the hundreds. And they would have traveled probably not just with a handful, but as a contingent, maybe a dozen or more. Their, their presence would have been impressive. They wouldn't have snuck into town They would have been known by all. They arrive not only with the ancient knowledge of Daniel's prophecy and of Israel's hope of the Messiah, but also they arrive saying His star rose in the east and we've come to worship Him. What kind of star is this, you might ask? Well, there have been all kinds of theories of what it was, some of them quite elaborate on how planetary alignments might have taken place somewhere out in space. People have worked out astronomical calculations suggesting that Jupiter and Saturn and moons were all lining up to create this bright light that would have been conforming uh, in the sky. Others suggest that it was some sort of comet, some sort of low-hanging meteor. And the assumption is that these magi who were specialized in astronomy somehow discerned something in their astronomical observations of the planets and the skies and everything which pointed them to Jerusalem that maybe God ordained 
something in the course of these planets that coincided with the birth of Christ and brought all this together. But I highly doubt that. I highly doubt it because uh, that, that if that's the case, it would be hard to explain why they went to Jerusalem. And why when they went to Jerusalem, they didn't really know where to go next. It would have been strange that this uh, significant light that they were uh, gazing upon and following, first of all, uh, would have disappeared to them suddenly when they came to Jerusalem, not to mention the fact that it would have even stayed while it took them the probably two months to travel across the desert to get there. I don't know any kind of star that would have acted in that way. You read down in verse 9, the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over where the child was. I don't know how any study of stars could have produced that kind of phenomenon. But I'll tell you what, can do that kind of thing. You hear it, for example, in Exodus 33. Moses used to go to the, take a tent and pitch it outside the camp. And the scripture says it was a good distance outside the camp and he called it the tent of meeting. And it came about that everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting which was outside the camp. And it came about whenever Moses went outside to the tent that all the people would arise and stand each at the entrance of his tent and gaze after Moses until he entered the tent. And it came about whenever Moses entered the tent that the pillar of cloud which would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent and the Lord would speak to Moses face-to-face as a man speaks to a friend. I think something similar might have been happening in the time of Christ. This star that they saw was most likely either some angelic being or maybe even just the glory of God that went before them, manifesting itself like the pillar of smoke or the pillar of fire which led Israel around in the wilderness. It manifests itself maybe in a blazing, glorious light. The glory of the Lord shining in the sky. And when these astronomers saw it, they knew that it was something very, very different than anything they had ever seen before. And so they concluded it was, it was over Israel. They concluded it must be the sign of the promised coming Messiah in the Israel that Daniel had so long talked about. I'll tell you another reason why it probably wasn't some astronomical sign. is because apparently no one else saw it. There wasn't anyone else in, in uh, Israel who apparently took notice of this. They had to be informed about it by these magi. But when they come to see the king, apparently it had disappeared until they have their audience with Herod. And then in verse 9, it reappears again. And yet apparently no one else saw it. Probably very similar to what you read in Luke chapter 2. You remember? In the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields watching over their flock by night, and an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone all around them. This was the bright appearing, perhaps, of the glory of the Lord standing all uh, surrounding, I should say, wherever they were standing. And so the glory of the Lord, it, it, it manifests itself. It leads these men right to where they need to be when they need to be there. This isn't, in other words, some pseudo-science of astrology that is somehow predicting the Lord's birth. This isn't in any way encouraging us to look to the stars to find the messages of God. 
This is a combination of God's sovereign placing of Daniel over the Magi hundreds of years before and God revealing the sign of His glory to these Magi hundreds of years later and bringing them to the place to worship the one they had heard of and studied all these years in the Jewish Scripture who, who had been preached even over in Persia. And why did God do all this? Well, probably because as John tells us, He came to His own. And John chapter 1 says his own received him not. God ordained all these events beginning 600 years earlier that would result in the king of the Jews being worshipped at his birth, even if not by his own people. He was worshipped by the royal court advisors, the powerful king makers of the world in those days, the Parthian Empire at least, the ones who pronounced the coronation of their sovereigns. These men came to the birth of Christ to signal His rule and His reign, to a blinded Israel. And so you'll understand the, the second scene as we move through the text then, not only the preparation of these magi all of these years, but now the panic that you see in verses 3 through 6 with Herod. Matthew tells us when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And he assembled all the chief priests and the scribes and the people to inquire of them where the Christ was to be born. This was Herod who was recognized as the sole sovereign of Israel at this time. He was conferred that title not by the Jewish people but by the Roman Senate when he in 40 AD traveled to, traveled to uh, Rome and spent three years petitioning the Roman Senate until finally after all kinds of promises of, of loyalty from him and no doubt promises of gifts. He finally persuaded them to name him the king. They gave him an army. He went back and brutally took the throne of Israel. And for 40 years almost, he had been holding on to his power with a level of cruelty and brutality that had rarely been seen in Israel. To say that Herod was brutal and jealous and suspicious of everyone around him would have been an understatement. Throughout his reign, he constantly was killing off anyone who came close to him. He killed his wife. He then killed his mother-in-law. Then he killed his two sons. Then a third son just before his death because he constantly was afraid that someone would come in and try to take his power. He became renowned for his cruelty and his paranoia and his bloodthirstiness. He was a man who had all the power and the prestige and the treasures that someone could want, and yet he was constantly fearful and insecure that it would be taken away from him. Josephus even writes of him saying, quote, The man's character had nothing human to commend it. And this conclusion is unavoidable if... When he was about to leave this world, he took care to leave the nation in a state of mourning over the loss of their dearest ones and gave orders to do away with one member of each household. Although they had done nothing wrong or offended him in any way and had not been accused of any other crime, end quote. So here's Herod, isolated, incredibly insecure, unloved and unrespected by anyone, knowing that when he dies, people won't mourn at all. So as an effort to force people at least to mourn at his death, he was going to murder a person from every household across the land. 
a wicked man, pitiable in some ways. His wealth and his power had brought him no joy, no happiness, no bonds of true love. He had all this wealth, he had all this prestige, and yet in meaningful terms he had nothing. And in an effort to endear himself to those around him, he was constantly trying to impress them. He tried to impress Augustus Caesar by building one of the greatest seaports of the ancient world. He named it Caesarea after the Caesar. And maybe more significantly, he made every effort to secure the favor of the Jews and embarked on massive construction projects, most notably the reconstruction of Solomon's temple. He was, in fact, one of the greatest builders of the ancient world and by many people recognized in his brilliance for this. The temple was his crowning achievement. As you know, many of its foundation stones are still even there today. You can go see. Impressive in the architectural ingenuity to put it together. And he meant it all as his crowning achievement and his grand demonstration of his great devotion to the God of Israel. He was was a profusive spender when it came to these kinds of religious acts. He was known for giving and giving and giving just enormous amounts of his wealth to the construction of the Lord's things and synagogues, places of worship all over Israel. Like so many in his own day, in fact, many powerful people down through the years, he used his power and his wealth to put on great acts of religious devotion, trying to prove to people, no doubt trying to prove to himself that he was indeed a pious Jew. But he was always suspected of less than that because he wasn't a real Jew. At least in the minds of Israel, he was born to the Edomian tribe, which was a conquered tribe about a hundred years earlier. They were conquered by the Jews and forced to convert to Judaism and always looked at with suspicion as being unwilling participants in the Jewish religion. And so here is the profile of a man insecure in himself, insecure in his relationships, insecure in his religion even, And yet, wanting to congratulate himself because of his achievements, wanting to congratulate himself even because of his religious devotion, he resented when other people wouldn't recognize it. He congratulated himself for his worldly success, constantly feared that people would reject it. And so, with the arrival of Jesus, this King Herod hears about all of this. And he's troubled that there is now some usurper who may come to take his place. In fact, it says not only was he troubled, but all of Israel troubled with him because no doubt the, the um, antagonism of Herod they knew would bring ill consequences for everyone. They had a right to be troubled. And so he gathers all the chief priests, the scribes, the people, begins to inquire of them where the Christ was to be born. Really, this shows how biblically illiterate and out of touch Herod was. Everyone, it seems, knew the answer to this. You may know that there was even a stir over Jesus in Matthew, excuse me, John chapter 7. Someone comes along and asks of Jesus, 
or says of Jesus, surely this is the Christ, and the people respond, the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? Has not the Scripture said that Christ would be born of the offspring of David, and from Bethlehem, the village of David, is where he's from? In other words, people knew this. Anyone who had studied the Scripture would have been well aware of this. This was common knowledge. But Herod, in all of his religious pomp, wasn't really a student of Scripture. So he calls together the chief priests, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the members of the Sanhedrin, the political appointees, and they all come together and inform Herod the prophecy of Micah that Matthew quotes here. Bethlehem, the land of Judah, by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you will come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So here they are, the nobles, the religious nobles and architects of Israel, the experts, the teachers of the law, the scribes, the priests. They have the Scriptures clearly in front of them. They know certain parts of the Scriptures quite well. They know the foretelling of the coming of the Messiah, and yet they could not or they would not recognize Him when He came. He would, of course, fulfill perfectly hundreds of prophecies. All of them they had studied every day. All of them they had taught every day, and yet all of their Bible knowledge... They didn't know God when He was right in front of them. And yet a visiting group of Persian magi coming out of a heritage of occultism and sorcery and magic who had just the slightest connection to the heritage of Daniel and hoped in that message that had been passed down to them. They get a little sign in the sky, and even though it disappears for a time, they come to Jerusalem and they keep searching. They keep searching for the Christ. What an amazing contrast, especially for Herod, who believed that he had all the outward signs of being a devoted follower of God, and yet when God actually came in the form of a baby, he was utterly unprepared to recognize him. In fact, he saw God in human flesh as a threat to his kingdom, to his wealth, to his status. Because clearly his wealth and his status have become his God. And despite all of his gifts and despite all he spent on the building of the temple, despite everything he did that he thought proved his devotion, the reality is he was utterly unprepared to meet God. Literally blinded by his worldly attachments, blinded by his power and his wealth from truly worshiping God when he had the opportunity. And yet right in front of him was the opportunity for eternal wealth, eternal reward, eternal power. It may have cost him his earthly kingdom, but he would have reigned forever with Christ. It may have cost him all of his earthly treasures, but he would have received riches everlasting. And yet he misses it all. He misses it all. You know, the Lord didn't just give us this as a cute story. He gave us this as an illustration, a spiritual truth. An illustration of how blind people are to the coming of the Savior. How blind they are in their worldly attachments, how blind someone can be, even in the heart of the religious capital of Judaism, even in the heart 
of the place. The very man who was building a temple to worship God didn't even recognize to worship him when he came. But the ones who did were the ones who by God's grace had been called out of darkness, had been called out of paganism, and they responded. God's always saving. He's always saving those sometimes that you least would expect. You might think that it's the religious. You might think it's the people who are raised up in the church. You might think it's the ones who come from the perfect homes, but it's not. The Lord often chooses to save the least, the outcasts, the forgotten, even the ones who are, if you will, wrapped up in some of the darkest corners of the world. God saves them. This is His message in the coming of these magi. Well, very quickly, you see in verses 7 and 8, a third scene, which is Herod and his plot. Herod secretly called the Magi, ascertained from them the time the star appeared and sent them to Bethlehem, saying, go make careful search for the child and when you found him, report to me that I may too come and worship him. It's amazing, uh, the reaction here is so different. This is Herod. He's looking for a way really to murder the child and probably murder the Magi. He can't do it now because they're his source of information. So he comes up with this ploy. He calls them in, begins to go after the information he's looking for, not so much a question about the child as much as about the star. And he put on this front of playing an interest in their, in their astrology and their astronomy or whatever it might be, as if he really cared. He's trying to ascertain with exactness or with precision is the, the nature of the word there. He wants to know all the details, just playing along as if he's really interested, as if he's really wanting to worship. He plays the game like so many people do. And yet, uh, it was all just a show. All just an appearance. He sends him out with his real devices. His real devices are to hold on to his wealth and to destroy Christ. But they go out from him. They've heard the king. Verse 9, they go their way which brings us really to the fourth scene, the revealing insight that we have there, the magi in their presentation of their worship. Verse 9, Lo, the star, or behold the star, which they had seen in the east, went on before them. The shining bright light that they had seen reappeared, begins to lead them on their way. They see the star. They rejoice exceedingly with great joy. Verse 10, they're overjoyed to see it finally reappear. And then eventually it comes and stands over the place where the Christ was, which was a house now, no longer a manger, no longer a, a cave or a hole in the wall. This was, this was probably a few months after his birth, um, probably after his dedication even in the temple. They come into the house where they see the child with Mary, his mother, and they fall down and worship him, verse 11 says. They worship, not them, by the way, no worship of Mary, worship of Christ in this scene and they recognize by the nature of their gifts exactly who it is that they are worshiping they bring him for example gold which was the customary gift for kings throughout the old testament you see it 
adorning the walls of David and Solomon, covering their palaces. Even Joseph and Daniel are draped with gold whenever they're called to serve in second command position under the king. They give him frankincense, which was really an incense burned to a god. It was a product made out of bark of certain kinds of trees. And it was like an oil that was added to flames that would create a fragrant aroma used during, during a rituals of worship. And you sprinkle it in, there was a sweet savor that would arise in the places of worship, supposedly bringing a pleasant aroma to God. And so this was a gift, a gift recognizing the child in his divinity, worshiping him like a god, if you will. And then there's myrrh, which is really a, a gift for mortals. It was a gift meant to, if you will, cover, cover up all the uh, ugly odors of life. It was used as a perfume. Esther used it on herself when she was preparing to go in and meet the king. It was most famously used to anoint even Jesus' own body for burial so that so that the decay of the body wouldn't overcome the funeral procession. Nicodemus bought a hundred pounds of it in order to embalm and prepare the body of Jesus. And so they come by gold, worshiping him as a king, by myrrh, understanding that he's also a man, and by incense, saying that he's a god. That's who Jesus is. And it's amazing. It didn't take much to convince these magi. But in the same time, it seems that you couldn't do enough to convince Herod. You couldn't do enough. What a stark picture of how blind people can be. They can be blind. They can be blind by their possessions. They can be blind by their pride. They can be blind by all the consumerism that takes place around us, blinded even in the midst of this season. You walk through the hallways of the shops. You go along in your car. You listen to the radio. I don't know if it ever occurs to you that nearly all the world is singing about a Savior, and yet so many miss Him. So many are blinded to Him because they won't. They won't allow themselves to come and worship. Fearful they'll give up too much. Fearful that they'll give up their kingdoms, their riches, their whatever. They're like Herod. Their religion might be a pretense. But the reality is, or the reality is, they worship, they worship themselves, they worship their things. So our challenge to you today is put yourself in this picture. Put yourself in this account. Which are you? Which one are you? Are you the one who hearing of the Savior would seek Him like these magi? Would seek Him having been informed by the ancient books of Scripture, having been informed by the godly heritage of saints who've come down to you? Would you be the one who seeks Him? Or would you be the one like Herod who misses the religious establishment who misses him, even when he's right under your nose. Our challenge is that you would examine your heart today and that you would know as you respond which of these camps you should be in, the one who worships our Savior. 
Let's stand together. We'll be dismissed with a word of prayer. Father, we're grateful this morning for the truth as it comes to us as a, a story in history, an account of these happenings, not just to fill our heads with knowledge, but to, to draw our hearts into the, the shameful contrast that's set before us, to let us know how merciful and gracious you are. Lord, you call those to yourself who are far off, and you bring them near. Those who are nothing, those who were cast off, those who are weak, you bring us in. You make us strong. You make us established in Christ. Lord, we bless you and thank you for we were those in darkness. We were those who could so easily have been lost in the lies of the world. But Lord, you've saved us. You've been merciful to us. Keep our hearts then tender to the worship of our Savior. Help us from ever hardening our hearts as Herod and the Pharisees did. Help us from ever clinging so tightly to the power, the wealth, and the prestige of this world. For thinking that by some great gift here and there that, that somehow we earn some favor before God. Keep us always ready to come lay our gifts before Him, to worship Him as our God and King. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.